thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. If you were here last week, um, Pastor Mike led all three of our services discussing the concept of stewardship. And he talked about how a steward is someone who is given the responsibility of managing or overseeing that which is left under his or her care. A steward is not an owner, but rather a caretaker of the things in their possession. And so as servants of Jesus Christ, we must fundamentally understand that everything that we have, everything that we have, every resource, every skill, every ability, every opportunity, every relationship, everything is something given by God for us to be good stewards of. Last week, Pastor Mike encouraged and challenged us as a congregation in the area of giving by sharing the rich history of specific ways that God has provided for this church. And he showed us in scripture how we are commanded to live as generous followers of Jesus Christ. And so today, what I want us to do is build on what Pastor Mike um, preached on last week in his sermon, specifically for the purpose of focusing on the topic of community. So I know David just read this for us, but I want to read this again for us and just have these words seared into our minds. And, and just as we sang this song about the spirit of the living God falling on us, hopefully you, under, you know and understand the context of what's happening in Acts chapter 2. We know that before Acts chapter 2 comes Acts chapter 1. And Acts chapter 1, if we were to line up the beginning part of Acts chapter 1 with the end of, of the four Gospels that we have in our Bible, we get, a, view, we get a, a full perspective and viewpoint of the last words that Jesus shared with his disciples right before he ascended into heaven. And during his dialogue where he was commanding and provoking his listeners to be great commission-minded people, people who would be interested in making disciples where they were to the furthest nation... They respond and ask him, Lord, when is it that you're going to come back for us? And in effect, Jesus said, don't worry about that. No, no one knows the time or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Judea Samaria, and to the ends of the world, the ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascends up into heaven, and then the, the, the followers of Christ, these, these Jewish people who believed in, in Jesus, and they, they believed that he was and is the Messiah, and they saw him do all of his miracles and, and heard about his resurrection. There's all of these Jews gathered together in this upper room from nations all over the world, Jews who speak all these different languages because of the dispersion. And as they're waiting on the day of Pentecost... You know, as Protestant believers, when we think about the day of Pentecost, we just think, oh, that's the day when the Holy Spirit comes. But the reason why these, these Jews were gathered in the upper room, traditionally speaking in Hebrew tradition, 
the, the day at Passover was when Moses brought, the, by God's power, the Israelites out of Egypt. And Pentecost, 40 days or 50 days later, was the day when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai to give to the people. And so it was a celebrated holiday, the day of Pentecost. And on the same day, traditionally, when Moses was given the law from God, is the day that the Holy Spirit came in power and in and, and tongues of flames that resided on the heads of everyone who was gathered in the upper room. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, who had come upon all of the believers, they were able to understand and communicate in each other's languages. And people observing this said, man, these people are going crazy. They're drunk. It's the middle of the day. Peter says, no, no, no. It's the middle of the day. We're not drunk. And then he gives a message and we read in verse 41 that 3,000 people were added to their number that day. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Everyone say fellowship. So I'm sure this is a word that many of you, if not most of you, are familiar with. And if you're not, we will be, hopefully, by the end of today. If you're awake and paying attention, you'll be very familiar with this word. And the Greek word that's used here is koinonia. Everyone say koinonia. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were, those who were being saved. And again, what we will do today is focus on this key word, koinonia, from this passage that we just read and, and see its use in other parts of the New Testament for the purpose of having the right mind when it comes to how we are to view community and fellowship. And then, in turn, what our aim should be in light of what the scriptures teach us about this concept of koinonia. So look at verse 42 again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So this word koinonia, it's a, it's a noun that properly means what is shared in common as the basis of fellowship. To put it more plainly, it's people that share all things in common. The sharing of all things, having all things in common. If you look ahead in verse 42 through 44, he says that all who believe were together and they had all things in common, koine. So this, this word koine is used also all over the, the New Testament. Normally its usage though is referring to the idea of things that are called common, undefiled or unholy. Um, one of the biggest things that the Jews had to, to, to grapple with and wrestle with when they were transitioning into this new, testimony, this new Testament time, this new covenant period is, you know, Peter, if you've been doing your map journal in these last couple of weeks, we read when Peter has this vision of the sheet that comes down with all these unclean animals and 
Jesus tells Peter to, to rise and to take and to eat. And Peter's like, ha-ha, I'm a good follower. I'm not, I won't do that, Lord. I have never eaten anything unclean, and I won't start today. And God's like, what I call clean, don't call common, coining. But, but, but this, the use of this word is only a few times we see it in the New Testament. Later on in Acts chapter 4 and only two other places in the Bible, in the New Testament, in Jude, the beginning of Jude and the beginning of Titus, it's referring to the people that, that share a common salvation, that's what we read in, in Jude, and then a common faith, that's what we read in Titus. And, and so we, we see how this word is, is used and it, it's very part of the root word of koinonia and it talks about what we as believers are to share in common. The reason why I want to build on what Pastor Mike talked about last week, and don't worry, we're not hitting you two weeks in a row with a why you should give all your money sermon. Don't worry about that. Um, but the, the reason why I want to build off of what Pastor Mike preached about last week is it's in this passage that we've just read, this concept of generosity. And in addition to that, the reason why uh, we, we talked about giving and we're talking about fellowship this week, I've been really excited, and I know all of us, all of your, your elders and pastors, your pastoral team here at the church, over these last several weeks, we've been having a lot of conversations with a new year, new aim, new direction. We really have felt this reinvigorated sense that the Lord is calling us to just be a little bit more intentional in some areas. And so one of the ways that we're, that we're striving to do that is by communicating some of these core and fundamental doctrines for Christian living that we see in the scriptures. A lot's changed since COVID, right? There's a lot of familiar faces from before COVID. There's a lot of new faces and there's a lot of people who are, who are no longer here. And so we've decided that what would be most beneficial when we gather together as the church in, in this setting, when we assemble together for church service, this is probably the most practical time that we have to communicate to everyone a concise message that the word of God is telling us to communicate to you. And so we talked about giving talking about fellowship tonight, and then we're really excited. Next week, we're going to start a new study through the book of 1 Timothy, which is going to give us a structure of how uh, Paul is telling Timothy to, to lead and to pastor and to disciple his church, and it'll be very instructive for us as we seek God's will and how he wants us to operate as his church. Um, but the reason why we're, we're focusing and going back a little bit to build on what Pastor Mike talks about is I want to use, I want to look at the use of this word koinonia in some of its different contexts. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, if you want to open up your Bibles there, you can, but I'll read this for us. In verse 13, we read this, by their approval, and I'll explain, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution. Everyone say contribution. The word that's used there is koinonia. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. It's interesting how the word that's used to talk about this gift that Paul is provoking the Corinthians to give is the word koinonia. But it makes sense. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we see that Paul is, is challenging the Corinthian churches by using the example of these Macedonian churches that might have included the churches, uh, the, the Berean church, the church from Thessalonica, maybe the Philippian church. But he tells, he, he writes to the Corinthians, the Macedonian churches, 
They're impoverished, they're poor, they are lacking and they are in need. But even out of their poverty, they are giving above and beyond what they could even afford to give. And the reason why he says that they're doing this is because they understand the ministry of the gospel. There were these persecuted and poor Christians in these Macedonian churches who, who, who had become so passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They said, look, we know that we're lacking, but we have a little bit. And whatever we have, we want to share. We want, it, we want to share and contribute it because we know that this can be used to further the gospel in places that have not been impacted by it the way that we have. Paul says, hey, look at this attitude. Apply the same thing. Yes, when you give your contributions, it can go to all sorts of cool ministry opportunities. But the thing is, is that when you give, it ultimately results, if you read verses 14 and 15 of 2 Corinthians 9, in the glorifying of God by people who were previously not glorifying him. And we get to participate in this gift of grace, koinonia. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, if you want to look there in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 10, a famous, there's a, several famous verses from this chapter, but well, if you've gone through any of our discipleship curriculum, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out that you can stand up, also, that you can stand up under it also. At the end, Paul says, whether you eat, in chapter 10, whether you drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And so the context of this is that Paul was telling these Corinthians not to make each other stumble and getting caught up in all these arguments about whether or not they should or could eat food that, that came from sacrifices that were previously offered to idols. And in the middle of this, as he's talking about this whole concept of eating and drinking and, and not making your brother stumble and so on and so forth, he says in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or communion in the blood of Christ? What word do you think is used right there? Koinonia. The bread that we break, is this not a participation or a communion in the body of Christ? So we see that when we share our resources so that no one will be destitute and so that everyone can hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ, koinonia is called the contribution. We see when we share remembrance of Jesus' work for us through communion or through the Lord's Supper, when we partake of the elements... This kind of worship, koinonia, it's called communion or participation. And as we'll elaborate on, when we share our lives with one another, when we have all things in common, the way that we read about it in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, koinonia is called fellowship. And here's the point. Koinonia, I think it can be boiled down to one concept, and it's a word that I've already said several times. But the idea is sharing. A sharing Christian is a healthy Christian. Did you hear that? A sharing Christian is a healthy Christian. So if you are a Christian who shares the way that Scripture tells us to, that will contribute to your health as a follower of Jesus Christ. And the, the adverse statement of, the, of this concept a selfish Christian, an unsharing Christian, is an unhealthy Christian. 
I want to talk briefly three things about three things. What are the marks of a sharing Christian? And I'm, I'm certain there's more than just these three things. These are just the three things that I thought about when I was preparing for this weekend. So here are three marks of a sharing Christian. The first mark, and it's in line with what Pastor Mike preached about last week, is that they understand their status as a steward. They understand their status as a steward. As I, as I began with in my introduction, a steward is someone who is just, not an, they're not an owner of anything, but rather they are, they are given possession for a period of time over something to be a caretaker or an overseer of. Earlier I said that everything that we have, everything, every, every gift, every ability, every resource, and I want to amend that statement just a little bit. It's, every, it's anything and everything that we can look at in our lives and, and see that it is good. Every good and perfect gift is from our Heavenly Father. I think it's R.C. Sproul who said, the only thing that we can truly come before the Lord and call our own is our sin. <laughs> so, so anything else that isn't that, that we have, is simply just a ministry of God's grace that he has given us. and We don't deserve it. And so a sharing Christian is someone who understands their status as a steward, as a manager, as a part-time caretaker of what's been entrusted to us. The second mark of a sharing Christian is that they are someone that understands their status as a servant. So a sharing Christian understands their status as a steward, and they understand their status as a servant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Can, can, can everyone just, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, think about this for just one second. I know that there's probably been times in all of our lives, for those of us who believe in Jesus, where we have thought about this concept. But just say this to yourself. You are not your own. A discipline that I need to be more diligent with in my life is I'm having quiet. The reason why I wanted Psalm 103 read today is that we see how David has a sit down with his own soul. And he's like, okay, soul, bless the Lord. All right, soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Soul, forget not all of his benefits. But there's this one part. He has redeemed your life, soul, from the pit. We, we, need to, we need to maintain this discipline of, of sitting down and, and saying, whoa, Drew, you have been bought with a price. And the price was, was the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you are no longer your own. He's redeemed your life from the pit, and you are his servant. Mike admonished me with this verse, but in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 through 24, Paul writes, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This word serving is duleo, which is the verb form of the noun for servant, doulos, which is really better translated in the New Testament into our English word, slave. We are slaving for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's probably a more accurate way to think about what Paul is saying. 
Whatever we do, we are to do it wholeheartedly unto the Lord because we are slaving unto Jesus Christ. We are his servants. We are his slaves. This is not a very pretty concept for a lot of people to stomach or think about. But please believe me when I say this. The status of being a slave of Jesus Christ is the most empowering, the most joy-bringing, the most, the most life-bringing, the most productive place that we could ever be as human beings. To be a slave to Jesus Christ means that we are coming under a master who is perfect in every single way. He will never lead us astray. He says, come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my, yoke is easy. my burden is light, my yoke is easy. But he does say, take my yoke upon you. We are his slaves. And when we listen to our perfect master, he empowers us. He gives us the instructions that we need. He brings us from a place where we are aimless, without direction. And he sets us on a course where there is productivity, where there's fruit. It's the best, it's the best condition. It is the best condition for a human being to say. It's the best thing that we could ever say about ourselves is that we are slaves to righteousness, is what Paul says in Romans 6. We are slaves to Jesus Christ. We've been set free from being slaves to sin, slaves to the world, slaves that ultimately leads to a life that ends in destruction and eternity separated in God, from God in hell. And we are now brought into the newness of life in order to serve, in order to slave for him. So a sharing Christian understands that they are a steward. A sharing Christian understands that they are his slave. And so the third thing, an un, a, a sharing Christian understands that their needs are not primary. A sharing Christian understands that their needs are not primary. Paul says, and I'm quoting Paul because he uses this word koinonia all the time. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, many of you know this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, what word do you think that is? Koinonia. If any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says, then complete my joy. Make my joy complete. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. How do we have this kind of unity, Paul? He elaborates. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of the others. To this type of participation, participation and sharing, we, it, it, fundamentally, it's important for us to understand our own status as a steward and as a slave, and to realize that we should not think of our own needs as primary. This is so easy to preach about, guys, like compared to how hard it is to actually do. And so I, I know I'm up here, I'm up here at the pulpit, and it seems like I, I'm, I'm teaching this, like I've got this all figured out, and everything in my life is a perfect, no. We're, we're all, I need y'all to have fellowship with me and hold me accountable so that we can pursue these kinds of disciplines together. This is hard stuff, but we must understand it. But I want to be clear about what true fellowship and participation is. Because if we miss this next point that we're going to talk about, all of these things that I've been talking about and the things that I'm going to talk about after I make this one point on how we can practically have 
fellowship. I'm going to mention practical ways that you can be involved in this church. If we, if we don't catch this, all of these things that I'm telling us to do might just result in some legalistic way of checking off a list and not really getting to the heart of what true fellowship is supposed to be. And to do that, can you please open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. I want, I want the Word of God to be open before our eyes. And let these words um, be, before, be before you open. Let, let, the word, let God's words provoke you and stimulate the kind of words that you would want to share. Starting in verse 1, look what John says. This is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, who's on the island of Patmos, who's given uh, revelation from Jesus, that we have the last book of the Bible in Revelation. And this is what he writes. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Paul, or John rather is addressing this heresy that was going on during this time. It's the heresy of Gnosticism. That there's this special knowledge that you need to have about the nature of Jesus' resurrection and death in order to really be good with God. Because, you know, they, they know the resurrection and all that stuff. It's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. And so his resurrection really wasn't like a physical thing. It was more like a spiritual kind of resurrection. Or some people would say he didn't really physically die. It was more of like a spiritual sort of death. And so when people experienced him afterwards, it was not maybe the way that you're thinking about it. And John's like, stop that, that nonsense, get it out of here. That which we've seen and we've touched, we proclaim it, we, it has been made manifest to us, we know this is the truth. I mean, John's like, oh, we were with there with Thomas in, in the room when Jesus appeared and we, we saw Thomas put his hands on his side and we, and we heard Thomas' declaration, my Savior and my God. So no, this is, Jesus literally died and he literally resurrected. And, it's, and, and that's the gospel. This is, that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about. This is what we proclaim. This is our confession. If, if the gospel did not happen, it, it, the way that scripture teaches us, if Jesus did not die physically and literally and resurrect physically and literally, then our faith is futile. It is meaningless. We are wasting time. A lot of money to keep the lights on at this church over the years has been wasted. But it is true. Jesus did die and Jesus did resurrect. And this is what gripped the hearts of thousands and then tens of thousands and then millions over the, gener over the last hundreds of generations. This is what John is talking about. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship, koinonia, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Look how John builds this up. He's saying, look, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, this is what's been proclaimed to us and we see it as supremely worthy. We need to proclaim it to you so that you can have fellowship with us. But then he, look how he contextualizes this. Don't get it twisted, though. The only reason how any one of us could ever have any sort of meaningful fellowship with each other is because of this next part. We, so that you two may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
our fellowship is first established vertically with God so that our fellowship can be true and meaningful horizontally with others. We must first believe in Christ to have restored fellowship with God. John states that what we have seen and heard concerning Jesus is what we must first believe in before we can have the kind of fellowship that matters with one another. Fellowship with God comes first. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 and 16, this is what the author of Hebrews says. I'll read this. Throughout him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. This, this, this idea of, I think Paul talks about it in Romans 12 verse 1, your whole lives being a, a sacrifice of praise. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of, of lips that acknowledge his name. So in your hearts and in your minds and on your lips, worshiping and praising God, having fellowship and intimacy with God, honoring Christ as Lord, as, as Peter says, it's set apart first. First, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. And then on, on the tails of that, then you can effectively make a defense for the hope that is within you, speaking to people with gentleness and respect. It always starts between, with us and God first so that that movement can extend to others. And if we ever get the cart before the horse in this type of thinking, any of our attempts for fellowship or for fruitfulness will always fall short. Unless the Lord builds the house, Psalm 127, it's in vain that his laborers strive. So let us not labor in vain while forgetting that we have fellowship with God. How amazing of a concept is, of this, is this, church? How amazing is the concept that God, in his love and mercy, has sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross, and that he has taken us out of, his marvel, out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light? Before this dynamic, there was nothing in it of ourselves that we could do to please God or to earn his favor, which is the point of him sending Jesus. And now the creator of the universe... Like, just think about this. The God who has ordered everything, he's sovereign over everything. Just with his word, he speaks and it comes to be. He knows how many heads are on each, sorry, well, he, doesn't, he knows how many heads. And he also knows how many hairs are on each of those heads as well. And he orders all of our steps. He knows our coming and our going. He discerns our thoughts from afar. He hemmed us in and he knit us together in our mother's womb. There is no place that we, where, we, where we can go where he is not present. This almighty and powerful and, and creative God is intimately and intensely involved in our lives. But that's only made possible through Jesus Christ. This is the reality that set the church on fire, literally, in the first century, and that spread to thousands being saved and to numbers being added day by day. And if just read Acts, added, you see that for the first few chapters, and somewhere around chapter six or seven, it switches from added, it switches from addition, and then just as I read my quiet time this morning in Acts chapter 12, the word of God spread and multiplied. Addition to multiplication, baby. Let's go. This is what gripped the hearts of believers. This is what 
grips our hearts today. This is what's going to continue to grip the hearts of people who don't even exist yet, other than in God's mind, until Jesus comes back. And we get to be a part of this because we've been brought into having fellowship with God. Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, one of my favorite passages. Think of, think of this verse in light of what we just talked about. Because that's kind of what the writer of Hebrews has been setting up, up until this point in Acts chapter 10, about all, all these ways that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies and illusions. So think of this verse. And, and, and having everything in mind that we've been talking about, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the assembling with each other, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This word for um, stirring up, it means to think toward the stirring up of one another. It's, it has several words in it, but literally means to stand, to be alongside something sharp. Like alongside a sharp edge. It kind of reminds me of Proverbs 27, 17, where um, as one man sharpens... Uh, we sharpen each other. I'm, I'm forgetting the word. Just as one man sharpens another, we got to do that. Okay. But we, we are called to stir one another up, to stand alongside, to sharpen each other. Sharpening can be a pretty aggressive process. I mean, it is an aggressive process. Sparks fly. It's not necessarily the most comfortable thing. But this is what leads to us being able to love and glorify God with each other in our context, in our communities. At CBC, we have various ways for you to partake in the assembling Together. I mean, just think of this. For, I, I talked about this last night a little bit more extensively, but I don't want to cut this out this morning. The opportunity that we have in America to even sit in a place like this and gather together and worship. And I, and I, know, that, I know that there's so many of you in here who love the assembling of believers, and you're here today to worship God, and, and you're excited about the opportunity to come together, and, and that's what the scriptures tell us to, and this is exactly the kind of mentality that we should have in the assembling, but, but, but I also know that, I also know myself, I, I know where I've been in, in my spiritual life when I, was, when I was a kid, and even since working at this church, my, my mindset and attitude has definitely shifted to this more often than I'm willing to admit. I know that there's a lot of you in here who are here just because you feel like you kind of have to be here. And although the scriptures are very clear that when we assemble together, and this is great, we're sitting in lines right now, and this is a good part of, of worshiping God, but this is not at even, at even close to being the point of how the church is supposed to holistically be in fellowship with each other. But this is good. We should be doing this. But I know that a lot of you, even though the scriptures tell us very specific things about doing the sorts of things that we're doing right now, Really all you're doing, and I've been here before, so I'm not being ugly, is just keeping a seat warm for about an hour and a half. And, and, and when we look at the, at the passion and the intentionality that the church had in the first century, regardless of King Herod and Emperor Nero and these crazy people that were persecuting and, and seeking to have these Jews killed, there's people all over the world today who don't have these kinds of opportunities to worship together. I see, uh, I see Eric Morgan sitting over there, and I know that, 
that him and Carla have, have been doing a lot of mission work in parts of the world where they are ministering to believers and with believers who every time they step out the door, it's dangerous for them. But they know that it's worth it because what they have seen and experienced, what God has ministered to them, it is supremely valuable to them. And so I think God is provoking us to say, wow, this is an incredible opportunity that I've been given to be an American living in El Paso, Texas in 2024. And you get to be at a church. We are not a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination. But there are opportunities for us to assemble together. And Mike, we talked about, our, we, we had four people who presented themselves for membership. And he even talked about earlier how there's a lot of you that have maybe been through the membership class, but you've never presented yourself for membership formally or officially. And I know that sitting in, in this room, there's a whole variety of, of mixtures of, of beliefs on like how being involved in a formal membership, and we're not going to get into that. I'm not going to try to twist your arm and make everyone feel forced like they should do it. Um, definitely there's people who have joined our church and missed the point of community, so that's obviously not the end all. But, but it's an opportunity for you to hang out with some of the pastors at this church. Learn about uh, what specific doctrines and focuses that we uphold as a body. We talk strategically and specifically about the mission and goals of our church. So it can give you a better mind to know how and if you could align yourself with a, with a community of people who have been charged by the word of God and by God himself to fulfill the Great Commission. So why join? Why join as opposed to being simply involved? Um, well, it lets us as leaders and, and other members know who is invested. And I'm not being a legalistic here. I'm not saying unless you're a member, then you don't really care. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's a practical way along with a lot of other ways to do that. It lets the, the pastors and elders have a better idea of who the flock is under their care. There's, you know, as a pastor, when I read First Peter, I see passages that are very confrontational. Shepherd the flock that is under your care. And so one way that our church gives you an opportunity to, to like say, I'm, I'm under the, the flock. I'm, I'm in the flock under your, under your care, Pastor Mike, is to join. Go through the membership class. In, church, in matters of church discipline, those who have submitted themselves formally under this church, it gives us a, a better mind and a better idea of how we can approach them the way that Jesus tells us to approach them in Matthew chapter 18. And it's just a practical way for the believer to say that they are coming under a certain set of leaders that God has ordained to lead and care for in, in this expression of the body of Christ. And at our church, we have discipleship opportunities. Something that, you know, I'm bragging a little bit about Pastor Mike, but this is his 30th year that he's been at Coronado Baptist Church, and, and he is... Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, brother. But, but he has built a legacy at this church, and it's not his legacy, right, Pastor Mike? It's, it's, it's the legacy of Jesus Christ. He, Pastor Mike loves the Word of God, and he studies it, and he understands the importance of making disciples. And so disciple-making is something that's been, been built into the fabric of our DNA as a church. It's, it's what he does, and so it's what a lot of us do, because he's leading us. You can get on our website right now and sign up for discipleship and say, I would like to disciple or I would like to be discipled. You can get on our website right now and say, I would like to be in a community group. 
And you can even designate or write in the little thing there, like, you know what, Drew, I, I think that the Lord might be calling me to lead a community group. I don't know what that would look like, but can we talk about it? Absolutely, let's talk about it. And at our church, we have all sorts of designated ministries. We have children's ministry, junior high, senior high, college, women's, men's, young adults, young families, singles, over 40. I mean, we have all sorts of these different ministries. It's, they're luxuries, honestly, guys, that most churches don't even have, and especially most parts of the world don't have. And they're opportunities where you can find fellowship. Various Sunday school classes. I mentioned uh, community groups. Community groups are an opportunity for you to use your spiritual gifts. If you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, uh, read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and ask the Holy Spirit to, sh to reveal to you the specific giftings that he's given you that are supposed to be used for, the, for contributing to the work of, of the body of Christ and to sharing the gospel with others. But if you have the gift of leadership or hospitality or teaching or encouragement, all of these gifts, a lot of people will come to me and to, to Pastor Mike and they'll, some people will come in the church and they'll say, Drew, I'm looking for ways to serve. And there's always a lot of different ways to serve, but one of the most practical things that I can share with people is, look, get involved. Just get involved. Get involved in, in, in part of the community. Get involved in part of our koinonia and, and start investing in people's lives. Because when, you, when you're invested in people's lives, and they're investing in your life, God is going to help you use your gifts so that you can contribute to the work of the ministry. Not necessarily are we going to have a role for everyone to do, like, okay, you will stack these chairs, row one through three. We don't necessarily have, a, 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 on paper, a role for every single person in this church to perform just so that the building can be taken care of or whatever. But there are a lot of people that come to this church. And if we took spiritually, if we took a spiritual investment and in, in interest in each other, wow, would we be able to use our gifts to contribute to the fellowship. This is the purpose of coming together. As we finish, look at verse 43 in Acts chapter 2. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers Verse 43 says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. As I was reading this in preparation for the weekend, uh, verse 43 just kind of slapped me in the face. Right? I looked into it a little bit, but the, the, the word for awe in Greek is phobos, which is where we get our phobia, fear. The fear came upon Every soul, awe and wonder and fear came upon every soul because of the signs and wonders that were being done through the apostles. The Spirit had just been poured out on the believers and many signs and wonders were taking place. And this created a joyful and an attentive kind of awe and reverence which held the attention of the early church and caused them to tremble and fear the God who was clearly working and moving amongst them. It created a sense of respect in the people not to trifle with this powerful, holy, and actively involved God. And this is often not the way that we view God. We don't have a healthy fear and reverence of God. This comes back to our, 
our vertical fellowship with God contributing to our horizontal. I think the reason why, I don't think, I, I, I would submit the reason why we, even if we are involved in all these other ministries and community groups and Sunday schools and small groups and disciples, maybe we, maybe we, a lot of you are involved in all of those things, but you still kind of feel like the community or the, or the, the koinonia has fallen a little bit flat in our fellowship. I would submit that it's because we don't view God with the same sense of awe and reverence and fear that gripped the first century church. Sure, maybe we aren't communicating with people from every nation by way of tongues of fire falling on our heads, but we see how God's word is spreading to every nation. In fact, we live in a city where the nations come to us. We can minister to people here. I don't care what your political persuasions are. God's called us to minister to people from every tribe, tongue, and language. And we live somewhere where they're just coming to us. That's pretty unbelievable. Maybe we aren't seeing supernatural miracles and wonders performed before our, every eye, before our eyes at every turn. Maybe some of you have stories about how he is. That's awesome. But make no mistake, he is no less alive and active than he was at Pentecost. We're just not viewing God the way we ought to. We see him as tame, distant, silent. But God is a stark, fearsome, stunning, awesome, and shockingly present reality. And when we see, when we pay attention to the works that he's doing in our fellowship and in the lives around us, when we allow the spirit of God to move in us so that we can be useful for those around us, we will marvel at his works. In closing, I, I like the way that John Piper sort of captures this idea, so I'm going to finish with a quote from John Piper, but he says, the absence of having the fear of God in our spiritual lives has a direct effect on the way we accumulate possessions for ourselves, the way we ignore the needy, the way we trivialize fellowship, and the way we play more than we pray. Again, this is all because of the absence of the fear of God. But if this kind of attitude would but only grip God's people, happy fear would come upon the church, upon all the churches, and material possessions would become as nothing except to serve others. People, not things, would become precious beyond words. And when we met each other, when we meet with each other, we would be meeting with God, and prayer would be everywhere. This is the kind of koinonia that God has called us to. We are responsible to take advantage of the opportunities that he gives us and care for each other. Lord, I thank you so much that your word is clear. We thank you that you have miraculously by sending your son to become a person, you have miraculously saved us from sin. You've given us a new heart, you've made us into new creations, and you've bought us with a price. So I ask that you would help us to glorify you with our bodies, that we would continually offer up on our lips a sacrifice of praise, so that we may, so that we may be able to pay attention to works and to sharing. Help us, Lord, to do this and to do it one day and one step at a time. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 We love you, church. We hope that you have a wonderful week.
And hopefully you'll find good fellowship this week before we meet back here again next week. God bless you.